Welcome to the Stockout. This is your show at Freight Waves for all things related to the consumer packaged goods, CPG industry, and their supply chains. I'm your host, Mike Bowdendistel. I'm the head of Intermodal Solutions here at Freight Waves. And this is the show at Freight Waves where we set aside 26 minutes to talk about um, just sort of anything that uh, sort of I feel is important with uh, consumer packaged goods. You know, sometimes it's earnings, sometimes it's just industry news. So uh, oftentimes it's Great data trends that we're seeing, and you know, this week uh, I'm going to talk a bit, a little bit about the the Food and Drug Administration new rules for food traceability, uh, which sounds like that could be a pretty big deal. It seems like it was the the final ruling uh, came out uh, last week, so I'll talk about that. I'll talk about some of the macro highlights that I think are sort of standing out as being important to the CPG industry as a consumer um, continues to be under pressure. I'll give a freight update uh, from the data that's in FreightWave Sonar, uh, which I think those trends are pretty uh, revealing. Then I'll give a quick update on the, the possible rail strikes. Seems like that's the issue that just doesn't seem to want to go away. And it's going to be another couple of weeks um, of sort of heavy news in there, I, I think. So talk about those things today. Uh, but first, a uh, word from our sponsor, which is RJW Logistics Group. RJW owns and operates every step of the middle mile. As an asset-based integrated logistics company, they offer a full suite of retail supply chain solutions under one roof, including industry-leading retail consolidation that consistently delivers over 98% on time and in full month after month to many retailers. RJW's programs offer global suppliers control and transparency, helping them improve in-stocks, achieve retailer compliance, grow market share, and increase sales. Visit RJW Group com to optimize your supply chain today. So big thanks to RJW Logistics Group. Did have them on a couple of the stockout shows in the last two months. So I invite you to go back and and, and check those out. Talked about things like how to uh, be on time and in full with all your your items. Having that retail compliance, those things are really important to those at CPG companies running their supply chains to avoid those fees from from retailers. Uh, so with that, I'll get into the first topic today, which is. The food industry associations are wary of FDA's new rule, uh, you know, having record-keeping, um, you know, information that's that's more strict. So, what happened last week is the Food and Drug Administration on Wednesday issued its final rule on the requirements for additional traceability records for certain foods. So, it's this 597-page rule. There's an absolute ton of material on the FDA. Uh, website. Um, I guess this has been, been in the process for some time with public hearings, you know, like you typically would have before a- a issuing a final rule. And this rule goes into effect on January 20th of 2026. So they do have about three years, the food industry, the grocery industry does to comply um, you know, with this. And so what these rules are, are designed to do is they're designed to provide a dr- additional traceability of what they call high risk foods uh, through additional record-keeping requirements from companies who manufacture, process, pack, or hold foods at the FDA um, th- that is included in this, this certain list. And then there's these key data elements that are going to be required uh, for certain uh, critical tracking events within the, the, the food supply chain. So, you know, basically... In a supply chain, you know, you have the, the, the handing off from one ingredient to another, um, you know, one... Uh, type of food product goes from one company to another, there needs to be a record of that. The idea is if something goes wrong, that they can trace back what the origin of, of those, those issues are. And 
it seems like this has been a bigger issue in um, you know packaged food lately with things like the baby formula issues and the you know, you know rumors of um, you know cereals not being compliant and the salmonella poisoning at the uh, that the GIF peanut butter and there were other peanut butters that were recalled and so maybe not surprisingly nut butters including peanut butter and other nut butters were included in this list of. Uh, foods that are high risk foods. Other ones are cheese products. That makes sense. Shellfish, ready to eat deli salads. I think that makes sense. There's been issues with things like bagged salads, um, and then a lot of the fresh fruits and vegetables. So these are this type of thing that could could impact a lot of CPG companies that do, uh, you know, packaged food um, that are on that list, and it impacts not only companies making those ingredients, but also ones that use those ingredients in the final uh, product and um, not surprisingly, both the Food Industry Association and the National Grocers Association came out against this requirement. Um, certainly that's something that would add costs. Uh, the National Grocers Association says this would, this would disproportionately hurt small grocers. And then there's this quote from the Food Industry Association says, it's already clear that implementation of requirements in this rule will demand tremendous investment of time and resources across the entire food industry. And it looks like this rule will significantly, significantly exceeds the statutory authority, uh, both written and intended by Congress. They're talking about the, the Food and Drug Administration's uh, authority. That was a quote from the Food Industry Association uh, Chief of Public Policy Officer, uh, Jennifer Hatcher. So food industry is against it, um, but something that I think uh, CPG companies are gonna have to, to deal with, uh, you know, nevertheless. Um, from, from here, I'll go to just a little bit of a macro update. I have a couple of, of charts here that I think um, are relevant uh, for the CPG industry. So I'll start with this, this CPI chart. And so here what I'm doing is in white line, CPI, we all know what that is, consumer price index, basket of goods that the average person you know, buys as if there's an average person. And then in green, have the producer price index. And so those are the, for, for all commodities. And those are you know, sort of a shorthand for the cost that uh, manufacturers would uh, pay. And so those uh, two lines, you know, starting you know, beginning of last year and throughout 2021 and the first half of 2022, the spread between those lines really narrowed. And so it was basically the manufacturers, their costs increased at a faster rate than they could pass those uh, costs on to consumers in the form of higher you know, price increases when commodity, uh, commodity prices increase the PPI moves faster upward uh, than the CPI does. And then when the commodities kind of roll over, the PPI gets more of a break sooner than the CPI does. And so now we're maybe to the point where the producer price index is coming down. It looks like it's, it's come down since the middle of last year. And I think that's good news for the CPG industry because the CPG industry, similar to that, what that chart would suggest, They've come under tremendous margin pressure throughout last year and the first half of this year. Some of those margins are starting to improve. Last week on the show, talked about Smucker. The JM Smucker company um, reported in October their gross uh, margin was 31.8%. That was actually a 230 basis point improvement from the prior quarter. So that seems to have maybe turned a corner. Um, and I think that's it's something that's, that's maybe going to be true of a lot of different CPG companies when, when they report uh, you know, earnings in their, in their upcoming quarter as well. So Smucker talked about having a 17% average price increase uh, sort of across the board and their costs are rising sort of mid to high teens, which is kind of in line. I think more of the CPG companies have been trying to get um, their uh, margin dollars back 
on, um, on, on sort of a dollar basis, not necessarily a percent basis. Uh, and so that's really the way that they're trying to steer um, analysts to uh, evaluate their, their their gross margins and say, you know, don't look so much at the percentages. The idea is, you know, we need to get it back on a, on a dollar basis, which I think makes uh, sense. And then, you know, from there, if CPG companies are able to recover their costs with higher price increases, then sort of the question becomes, well, are their elasticity is going to rise? Because you think about some of these CPG companies increasing prices 15%. 17%. In a lot of cases, it's been, you know, uh, sharp double digit price increases two years in a row now. And, you know, how are consumers going to respond to that? Most of the CPG companies have said elasticities are so far are low, below historical uh, trends, less than they would have expected. Some of the CPG companies, though, have said they're low but rising. They've gotten a little bit worse. And I have a chart there that maybe explains why this, this uh, non-revolving and revolving credit um, you know, a chart where it, I, I have the revolving credit in in blue, so basically credit cards, and then in in white, you know, the straight line is you know non-revolving credit. So that's you know, mortgages, auto loans, student debt. That's not as volatile, but that that non-revolving credit, um, you know, is, is is the bigger ticket there. But but that's up you know five point seven percent year over year, mostly due to home prices rising. And then um, the, the revolving credit is maybe the thing that's more concerning, which is not only well above pre-pandemic levels, it's up 15% year over year. So the average consumer holding a larger you know, credit, balance, credit card balance. And the good news is there haven't been many delinquencies. And I think part of that's just because the, the labor market is still strong. You know, people who everyone wants, who has, wants a job. You know, has a job, and um, you know, really, sort of the big difference between now and sort of the previous sort of recession was that um, you know people got mortgages, but they weren't getting mortgages who shouldn't be getting mortgages. There weren't the, wasn't the same sort of subprime issue. But when you look at a chart like that, and you think, well, gee, month after month, uh, credit card balances, you know, rising, and you know, the, the other thing that goes into that is savings rates are very low. You kind of feel that the consumers just more and more stretched each month than they were in the previous month, and would think that they'd be cutting back on uh, things that um, you know certainly are things that are discretionary. But even you heard from Target, you know, a week or two ago, that you know, consumers are starting to cut back on even more of the staple uh, products that you think would be less discretionary. So retailers clearly seeing that. Um, you know, haven't really seen any data on Black Friday yet, other than. Stores were packed with a lot of bodies, but I don't know if there was, um, you know, as much spending on discretionary items. I guess people were um, disappointed with the, the lack of uh, deep uh, sales given the high, uh, you know, inventory levels for for general merchandise. So consumers still under pressure. And I'll talk a little bit about the freight uh, data, but first, just want to give another shout out to today's sponsor, which is RJW Logistics Group. Here's a different graphic than we were showing before. Are you assessing the advantages of prepaid versus collect freight management for delivery into retail? RGW's retail consolidation program consistently delivers over 98% on time and in full to ensure stronger shelf presence, increased in stocks, retailer compliance, overall retail uh, supply chain improvement. Visit rjwgroup.com to speak with a retail logistics expert about the advantages of RGW's program and to make the best decisions for your business. So, um, you know, recommend uh, checking out RJW's uh, group or listening to the, the interviews that I did with uh, their CEO, Kevin uh, Williamson, to, to get, um, you know, more detail uh, there. And sort of that, um, that having that on-stock presence has, has really been a big driver of 
uh, market share that we've seen across the CPG you know, industry. We've seen things like in the cereal industry, the companies that have been able to keep those boxes on shelves have been the ones that have gained uh, you know, market share was really interesting during the uh, recession or during the during the pandemic that the national brands gained share from a lot of the gener- generic brands simply because those national brands were on shelves. Their supply chains proved to be more resilient, and um, some of the pickup in private label recently has been maybe a little bit of a reversal of, of that trend as things have improved in the supply chain world a little bit still more challenges than the CPG companies are accustomed uh, to. The next topic here, I'll talk a little bit about freight rates. And I think that, you know, really the headline here is that contract rates are falling, but still remain well above the spot rates, which tells you that contract rates have further to fall. So I'm going to put up a chart on the van uh, contract uh, rates. And this is a, uh, you know, year over year chart. If we can get this, this van contract chart, on there, there it is. So the white line is 2022, and you've seen that it was at a very high level for the first half of this year, and it's still at a relatively high level, um, but has has come has come in, you know, somewhat. So it went from about let's call it a high of three dollars a mile. This does not include fuel. It was back in in June hit about three dollars a mile. Now it's down to two sixty two, and and really sort of in a, a, a contrast to the last couple of years, where the last couple of years those uh, van contract rates even excluding fuel, rose throughout 2020, um, taking a big step up in the middle part of 2020 and then throughout 2021. And now we're down a little bit year over year. So you do have to think when you get to, to next year that um, they're going to be you know, negative year over year. That doesn't necessarily tr- translate into savings for the CPG companies because those con- the rates in that chart do not include fuel. And the fuel prices are well above where they were last year. Um, you know, I've gotten in my data up 44% year over year for diesel tr- uh, truck stop, uh, you know, fuel, uh, that would be more the, the, the retail side, but, um, you know, that's, you know, 584 gallon versus 366 last time, you know, this, this time last year. So, so all in still not seeing a lot of savings that may come because of what I'm going to show on this next chart was the van contract, uh, initial reporting, um, it, it compared to, uh, the spot rates. And so, here we have the, those van contract rates. That's the same same way, just uh, presented differently in, in, in the white line. Come down a little bit from the beginning part of the year. In the orange line is the spot rates for uh, you know van, and you've seen you know that those you know are adjusted to exclude fuel. Um, so there's a calculation that goes into that. But so so the idea is you put you know two sort of like for like series in the same chart. Contract rates excluding fuel in white. Uh, spot rates adjusted for fuel, so excluding fuel also in orange, you see that really big spread. And so that spread of, let's call it 70 cents a mile, not sustainable and likely that the contract rates are going to follow that lower. If there is a um, positive sentiment out there on the industry, which are you know hard to find these days, it's that there have been a few um, you know voices that have talked about maybe spot rates don't have much further to go. So there was a big um, you know, upgrade uh, by UBS and a top, their analyst there, Tom, Tom Wadowitz, upgraded a bunch of names in the truckload sector, said you know the, the spot rates at a low level, unlikely to go lower, and it's a positive sign for the industry. Also saw that ACT uh, Research, um, company in uh, Columbus, uh, Indiana, I know the guys at, at ACT Research, they said something you know similar that said that this maybe the spot rates aren't going to go much lower, and their reason was that the carriers cannot 
operate below their marginal costs, and it would make more sense if the spot rates go got it much lower to just park the, the the trucks. And so they kind of think things are things are bottoming. Um, but that said, I don't know that I've seen any data to suggest that there's going to be a big rebound. Would think that um, you know this the rest of this year, early next year you know, going to be very, uh, you know, going to be very slow from a freight uh, perspective. Um, so with that, I'll go to the next, um, you know, chart here, which is na the National Truckload Index, and it also has a forecast. And so this is na National Truckload Index, it's uh, spot rates, and in orange, we provide a forecast of those uh, spot rates. So a little bit of a contrast to what I was just describing, how some uh, you know, industry observers think that, you know, spot rates are not going to go much lower. Our uh, algorithm says, well, maybe it has a little bit further to, to go before there is a rebound. Now we're there down, down at 258 and um, forecast is down at, at, at 231. So if you're watching this closely to see, is that likely to happen? I mean, it, it does tend to slow down right at the end of the year and January tends to be a slow uh, month, really, really January and February. March tends to get better from a seasonal perspective. So it'll be interesting to see. Um, you know, if some of those prognostications are right and spot rates are, you know, bottoming out or if they have another uh, you know, step uh, down. So a little bit of a, a you know, sort of industry uh, debate, um, you know, in the industry, in the uh, among observers in the, in the industry. Uh, this final topic today, I'll talk a little bit about the rail strike, have an update on the rail strike. This is kind of the topic that just will not go away. It's kind of like a bad, uh, you know, bad sore throat. It just seems to, to keep um you know, with us. But a uh, great article uh, out last couple of days by uh, Joanna Marsh, my colleague who is on the editorial uh, side that covers the railroad industry. Um, she has an article that says five things you should know about a potential rail strike. Asking Congress, Congress to intervene is not as easy as it sounds. That's maybe something that I was guilty of, um, you know, talking about is saying, well, you know, if there's a rail strike, Congress will certainly um, order the workers back to work post haste sort of referencing, you know, going back in the early 90s, I think it was a two-day strike when this last time this happened. And then, you know, thinking now with so much focus on inflation, supply chain issues being really at the top of the public's mind, that it won't last that long. But, you know, point is well taken that it's it's still hard to coordinate something in Congress, the United States, and get that passed because there's just, you know, people that will filibuster or you know, have a different perspective for political reasons, and it's hard to get anything done in Congress. So we hope that uh, doesn't happen. As a quick overview, out of the 12 rail unions that have uh, um, issued ratification votes, published ratification votes, eight have voted to ratify, four have voted against ratification. Last week was a big one. Uh, the two big unions uh, voted and, uh, and um, announced the results of their votes um, a week ago today, and it was the Brotherhood of Locomotive Engineers and Trainmen narrowly voted to accept. And then the Smart TD Union, which used to be the UTU, those represent the conductors, that's the largest single rail uh, you know, union, they voted narrowly to reject. Uh, we did have the president of that union on, uh, Jeremy Ferguson on FreightWaves Now, um, you know, last week to discuss. He had a lot of other good content on FreightWaves Now re re related to the um, labor issues, including you know, in independent industry analyst Tony Hatch. Um, you know, Harris uh, Ligon, who has founded a startup called Telegraph, uh, follows the rail industry very closely. So we're, we're going to have a lot more on that uh, soon. And, and really sort of where the things stand today is that these unions have until 
the end of the recent cooling off period, which would be the end of the day, um, so midnight on December 8th. And so a strike is possible December 9th um, if one of those four outstanding unions decided to um, to, to strike. If they did, the, the other unions would not uh, come to work sort of out of, out of solidarity. They've uh, already made that uh, pledge. And, um, you know, some of the recent discourse that's happened in the last couple of days, AAR highlighting the rail workers' compensation is well above other industry workers, sort of, you know, well into the six figures, which, you know, I don't think that was really a point of, um, you know, contention. Uh, I think the rail workers work harder than most people, and I think they get paid more than most people. So at least directly, that makes sense. Really, sort of the sticking point has been on, on things like the sick days issue, which, you know, that's something that has changed. But now that there there is um, like I'm kind of a point system, so everyone doesn't call in sick for for, for Super Bowl, uh, you know, Sunday. And uh, railroads make the argument that the unions um, have conceded certain things on sick days in order to um, you know have that higher you know pay level. Where basically a lot of the union you know workers that if they take a small number of days, a couple few days off, they don't get paid for those days. But if they have a greater sickness, they have to stay home for two, three weeks, they get paid, uh, they do get paid for, for those longer um, ex- extended breaks. And so that was that not getting paid for the, the short-term absences, one of the things they, they conceded in order to get the, the higher pay scales over the years. And so that's one of the argument that the, 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 the railroads um, make, um, would also expect that there's a lot of um, just news coming out on, on freight waves about this. Um, you know, we've had some people on uh, saying, well, why don't the the railroads just give the workers, um, you know, the, the, the sick days. Well, I, I think they're trying to figure something out to make it so the railroads can run 24-7, 365, and also the rail workers can take time off, you know, when they need it, not feel like the attendance policies are, are draconian. But, you know, we hope that something can be, can be, can be worked out there. Um, you know, I am on one of the, the Slack channels that uh, the editorial writers talk about what they're writing on, you know, certain issues. And um, I think there's going to be a lot of good content on uh, FreightWaves.com uh, related to the rail strike in the coming uh, days. Um, you know, one of the writers talk, was talking to a number of uh, sort of union members and sort of why they voted yes or why they voted no. That'll be interesting. I think another, you know, um, angle might be sort of how the precision scheduled railroading and Hunter Harrison, who was the CEO of a number of railroads, you know, CN, uh, CSX, and CP over the years, and Illinois Central b- before that, how um, his precision scheduled railroading ultimately let, got, you know, got us to this point uh, today. Um, so another angle might be how this impacts certain shippers. Uh, another angle is um, how this impacts the truckload industry. There is a quote that I've got, you, got for you from the Consumer Brands Association, which is an industry association that um, represents the CPG industry. So something you know, very relevant to this show. And uh, Tom, Tom Madrecki, who I've had on the show, he says um, that rail strike would effectively bring hundreds of America's largest food, beverage, household, and personal uh, care manufacturing operations to a halt in a matter of days as inputs and ingredients run out. On-shelf availability and accessibility will quickly drop, compa- compounding by an almost inevitable panic buying. That's what we don't want. We had enough of that in uh, March of uh, 2020. Uh, this is um, my last chart uh, today, and this is the one that um, I've been talking a lot about, and it, it really it hits directly of, of uh, what happens in 
um, just a threat of a, of a rail strike. And so you sort of go back in, in, in September as that cooling off period was about to end. We did get within about two days in mid-September of a possible legal rail strike, one, one that would have been lawful. And there you see that drop off, you know, right where I have that, um, that, that call out where it, it did drop about 13% um, from the part right after Labor Day. Now those are using a seven day moving average. So it was really worse than that. And then Atlanta, it was a drop more like 20%. And what's interesting about Atlanta is that it never recovered. So you sort of combine that fear of, of maybe not wanting to in-gate containers as Norfolk Southern was closing intermodal terminals to in-gating combined with the weak truckload market and so many of those lanes in and out of Atlanta competitive with the highway, you know, think of it like an Atlanta to Chicago, that it did seem like a lot of the shippers decided to use the highway instead of intermodal and maybe haven't come back. So that's something that um, to, to, to watch. Now, not all of the rail shippers, really most of the rail shippers don't have that option. The other, you know, the car load segment is not as competitive um, you know, with the highway. So there, a lot of those are just really captive to the railroad, but an intermodal, you can see some fungibility there with the, with the, the, the weak uh, you know, truckload market. So we're going to be watching that very closely on freight waves. I think it'll be the main sort of topic of the hour um, for the next, uh, let's call it two or three weeks, hopefully not much longer than that. But um, that's really what I want to go over today. And if you haven't uh, some sign up for my newsletter, please go to www.freightwaves.com forward slash the stockout and uh, go ahead and, and do that. If anyone needs anything from me, you can email me at mbowdendistal at freightwaves.com. Hope everyone has a great day.